let's move to our seats. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick Cleveley. I'm the pastor of Covenant Grace Baptist Church uh, in Timaru. And I brought my cheerleaders along with me. You might hear them from time to time. Um, I won't have the opportunity to speak in front of the the main auditorium, so I'm going to have to just thank Riverbend now and Matt now. They've decided not to come to this talk, so please pass it on. Um, just r- it's fantastic to be here. This is my first Impact Conference. Thoroughly enjoying it. It's just so great to be with like-minded people. And uh, yeah, look forward to many more. Uh, so if you're here today, you know that we are going to be talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. So what I want to do is I want to begin by just setting the scene. Then we're going to dig into the Word in 2 Timothy 3. And then at the end, I'm going to drop a bomb on whether we should use gender pronouns, and then we're going to take questions. <laughs> All right? So uh, let's begin. One of the phrases I've uh, heard over and over again in recent history is, are the words deconversion story. You've heard of a deconversion story? We all know what a conversion story is. When someone becomes a Christian, they tell their story about how they were converted. Well, Today, more and more, we're hearing about deconversion stories, where people are broadcasting in a very public way. They're turning away from Christianity. You may know the famous story of Joshua Harris, the author of I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He's He's well known for that book because his book revolutionized the Christian dating scene and probably caused a lot of harm as well because it was extremely legalistic. Um, Anyway, he renounced his book, he divorced his wife, he turned away from the faith, and he turned up publicly at a gay pride uh, march. So that's uh, Joshua Harris. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry if I've ruined uh, a favorite book of yours. Um, Another famous deconversion story is the story of Rhett and Link. Do you guys know who Rhett and Link are? All right, so these are famous YouTube stars, millennial YouTube uh, stars and podcasters. One writer writes this. Rhett and Link have grown their brand performing hilarious satirical songs and engaging in zany stunts such as duct taping themselves together, playing wedgie hangman. I try to visualize that. I just I don't know what it, what it looks like. Crushing glow sticks in a meat grinder, flinging bags of dog feces at one another's faces, Uh, They've been on various TV shows, and they were once upon a time Christian missionaries who worked with Campus Crusade, and they have both left the faith. You might have heard of Paul Maxwell with DesiringGod.org, another reformed celebrity who's been on the conference scene who has recently deconverted. We could add Bart Ehrman and many others. Now, how do we respond to this situation? What I'm trying to do here at the beginning is just set the scene for how things are dramatically changing. That there is a great sense of shift that's going on. But uh, on the one hand, there's nothing new under the sun. This is not a new thing where suddenly for the first time, because we now live in the information age, we finally have the facts which disprove the Bible, and people are now suddenly turning away from from Christianity because they can finally see through it as false. No, what we have now is the ability to track with people in their daily lives, on a daily basis, anywhere in the planet. And so what we're seeing is something that's always gone on, but now it's just more in our face. 
It's uh, more popularized than ever before. And so what I'm hoping to do today is to preach to you the sufficiency of Scripture to help you stick to the truth despite all of these deconversions going on around you. And it's not just deconversions. We're now living in a post-Christian world. Do you feel it? This is not the world that we grew up in, depending on your age. All right? The Western world has cast off its Christian heritage. It has condemned its Christian heritage. So we live in an age where we are not only seeing Christians leave the faith, we're also seeing Christians shifting on things that they've always believed. So we are seeing something called progressive Christianity. Do you guys know the emergent church? It was that phenomena, Rob Bell, early 20th cent, uh, 20, 21st century. You know, and the, the saying goes, the emergent church came and they emerged and went. It's not, it's not completely true. Some of those people went on to become what we call progressive Christians. And they have stayed in the church, but they now have a brand of liberal Christianity. It's the new liberalism known as progressive Christianity. And it's soft on all the long-held beliefs. I was listening to an interview uh, with Carl Truman the other day. And uh, something that he said stuck with me. When he first went into the pastorate, one of his elders came to him and he said this, Don't think that anyone under the age of 35 is going to agree with your sexual ethics. Well, that's a strange statement, but it's so often true. Today, even those who profess to be Christian think that cohabiting before marriage is okay. So let me start off with st uh, some statistics. Now, my, uh, my apologies, this is from America, but when America sneezes, the world catches a cold. Um, so it's pretty typical of the West, and I think you'll see that it does uh, ring true in our situation as well. So this survey was done looking at those who are not affiliated with religion as well as those who are affiliated with religion. So uh, taking a survey from atheists, agnostics, and the nuns, you know who the nuns are? That's people who are spiritual but unaffiliated, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N. 62% um, of these non-religious people said it's always okay for consenting adults in a long-term relationship to have sex outside of marriage. 33% of Christians agreed. Okay, so one-third of the Christians thought it's always okay for unmarried people to have sex. 17% of those who are unaffiliated said it's sometimes okay. Sadly, 24% of those Christians surveyed agreed. Among the unaffiliated, 7% said it was rarely okay. And 14% said never. So there are 14% of people who are non-religious who think you should still save it till marriage. 10% of Christians surveyed said it's really okay. And only 32% of Christians reflected the biblical worldview and said it was a sin to have sex before marriage. So putting all of those things together, over 50% of the U.S. Christians surveyed thought it is always or sometimes okay to have sex before marriage. It's another long-held Christian belief that has gone down the toilet. But that's not all. <laughs> On top of that, many today think that attending a same-sex wedding or celebrating a same-sex wedding or taking photographs and you know, liking the photos of those who've gone to uh, same-sex weddings is okay. They think it's okay to go to gay pride marches in support of their friends who are gay. 
that gay marriages are somehow legitimate in the eyes of God, that same-sex attraction is not a sin, that a person can identify as transgender, that a transgender man is a true man and a transgender woman is a true woman. In a 2020 survey, 34 countries were surveyed. And it was found that 24% of those people who were attached to a religion, they felt that God approves of homosexual marriage, that it's okay. So a quarter of people who are attached to traditional religions thought it was okay. Things are changing on a wide scale. Can you feel it? Does this ring true to our experience and what we're seeing on the news and what you've felt in your conversations with your friends? It is the same in New Zealand. But it's not just sexual ethics. Today, you can be a Christian and pro-abortion. You can be a Christian and pro-euthanasia. You can be a Christian and pro-recreational marijuana. This is an age where Christians are capitulating. Now, as I pondered this reality and I've thought, how do I equip my young people? How do I equip my church to deal with this sinking sand that is all around us? How do we, how do we process this? How do we evaluate it? I think here's a key thing to note. We need to make a distinction between cultural Christianity and convictional Christianity. And the difference between those is whether we absorb our values from the world or from the word. And uh, we need to realize where we're at in history. In past generations, and several of our speakers have, have made comments on this, in past generations we've had a Christian heritage here in the West. And so the teachings of the Bible had shaped the Western world so that it was commonly agreed that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and the nuclear family is a good thing, that sobriety was prized as a sign of responsible adulthood, that hard work is something virtuous and not to be avoided, that marriage was the proper place to exp uh, express sexual love, traditional values as we understand them as Christians. However, culture has moved. And whether you're a cultural Christian or a convictional Christian will show in whether you are moving with the times. And the question is, how do we stop ourselves from moving with the times? And that's where the Bible comes into it. We need an anchor. We need a foundation. And we need to be convictional Christians who establish our beliefs upon the word of God. So for our message, I want to direct your attention to 2 Timothy 3 verse 14 to 17. And uh, before we dig into those main verses, we're going to just take a quick survey or overview of the chapter and get it in context. So uh, 2 Timothy 3, Paul begins the chapter warning Tim Timothy about a massive shift, a massive change, just like the change that we're experiencing today. Let's read together verses 1 to 7. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be, and uh, the last days, when are those? Is that only the seven-year tribulation in the future? No, it's the whole time between the first and the second coming of Christ. We're in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Sound familiar? 
desperate situation of immorality. Verse 8 and 9 then go on to speak of false teachers that blatantly stand and oppose the truth of God. Paul says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Paul then goes on to remind Timothy of his own good practice, in contrast to those who have turned away. Paul points out how an imitation of him is the good path to walk at times like these. And so in verses 10 and 11, he he talks about how Timothy has properly followed Paul as Paul has followed Christ. Read those verses with me, 10 and 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So there's a bit of a game plan for how to navigate times like these. In verse 12, he then goes on to remind Timothy of this truism, that all who seek to live a godly life in Christ are in the minority, and so they will suffer persecution. They'll suffer ridicule, rejection, and more violent treatment. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then in verse 13, he describes the compounding nature of the problem just goes from worse to worse to worse, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's pretty dark, isn't it? He's painting a very, very, very bleak picture. What are we to do when things are going from bad to worse? Verses 14 to 17 are Paul's encouragements in how to stay true to the truth, in how to stay firm when everything else around you is sinking sand. So what we want to do is we want to look at these verses under three headings. We're going to look at holding to the word, what is the word, and the sufficiency of the word. So holding to the word, verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So here we see Paul calling Timothy to continue in the truth that he has firmly believed. This is the call that we all need to heed. In a world of lies, Paul calls us to hold on to the truth. In a world that does not believe in objective truth or ontology, we are called to hold firm to the word of God. Now, Timothy, who was half Jewish, but who had been uh, schooled in a biblical worldview as a boy by his mother and grandmother, is being told to hold on to that biblical worldview that he had been taught from his parents on his mother's side. The truths that he had been taught from the scriptures. What truths were those? truth that God is Yahweh, who he is, his reality, that he is our creator, that human beings have been made in his image, that mankind has fallen in sin, and that God in his grace has promised a savior born of a woman to save us. The truth of God working in history through miracles to save his people, the historicity of the Old Testament, the reality of angels and demons, heaven and hell, God's law as our ethic, 
God's teachings on sexual immorality, the truth about marriage, family, sexual identity, why we suffer, the biblical worldview. These are the things that Timothy would have been brought up on, and these are the things that he must not abandon. Hold firm to these truths. In particular, Paul tells Timothy that he learned the most important truth from the Bible, which is what? The way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We know this to be true, don't we? The Old Testament is full of types and shadows preparing the world to come to welcome the one who would die to save us from Satan's power, who would die to pay for our sin debt, who would live an obedient life and save us by his righteousness, who would become the Lamb of God, who would take away our sins, that we as sinners can be reconciled to a holy God. The need for salvation is taught in the Old Testament because we cannot save ourselves. The way of salvation is taught in the Old Testament, that we must be saved by faith in God's gracious provision and Savior. The person who saves us, Jesus Christ, is prophesied in the Old Testament. There is no other book that teaches these things. This is the book that you need. This is the book that you must cling to. So why must Timothy hold fast to these things? So Paul goes on to give us two reasons. Firstly, because of who he learned from, namely Paul, his godly mother and grandmother, and secondly, because of what he learned, namely the sacred writings, the word of God itself. So let's look at those who Timothy learned from. Firstly, let's start with Paul. Timothy was discipled by the apostle Paul. Why is that so important? Well, is Paul saying, hey, Timothy, I'm the best Christian that there is. You got it from me. That's all you need to know. Is that what he's saying here? Why does he point to himself as a, a reason for why he should continue to hold the things that he has learned? It's because of who Paul is as an apostle. Paul took Timothy under his wing as a young man and trained him. What Paul taught Timothy is trustworthy because he is an apostle. What is an apostle? An apostle is someone who is hand-picked by Christ who has seen the resurrected Lord, who has been put in a position of authority in the church, who is a foundation-laying member of the church, Ephesians 2 verse 20, who has granted special revelation from God. If you want some evidence, you can look at Ephesians 3 verse 1 to 5, where Paul talks about being a steward of God's grace, a steward of the revelation from God. When Paul preaches, he is preaching directly from the Lord. Timothy was taught the truth that he holds to by an apostle. So here's a question for you. Have you been taught by an apostle? Yes, you have. In Romans, 1 Corinthians, Matthew, Mark, Jude, Revelation, and you get the picture. Friends, we have the apostolic truth. Timothy is being pointed to the apostles and the confidence they can have because God is working through them. We can have that same confidence. But look, let's not gloss over the fact that Timothy has been brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord by a godly mother and a godly grandmother. Paul speaks of Timothy's rich heritage of faith. Listen to 2 Timothy 1 verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure 
dwells in you as well. We must not underestimate the importance of the influence of godly parents and grandparents upon children. This is the reason why parents should pray with their children, read the Bible with their children. They should talk about the world from a biblical worldview with their children. We learn our ethics and our, uh, our religion from our parents. I remember being, uh, I was brought up in a non-Christian home. I wasn't schooled in any religious notion. My dad thought we should be non-religious. But I remember going to school and the teachers would, would talk about religion and the kids would start talking about religion. And I'd go home and ask my mom, you know, what do we believe about God? And she had some weird new age mystical mumbo jumbo. And that's what I, that's what I believed. I learned it from her. But today we are giving this instruction over to other voices, aren't we? The government's trying to take it from us through the education program in schools. We're giving it away ourselves as we allow our children open access to their devices and whatever is coming uh, over the internet. There are so many voices that are streaming into their lives. But Paul is holding up the influence of parents and grandparents. But just measure it. Which view of the world seems more compelling? Young people, you can, you can answer this one. What seems more convincing to you right now? What looks sexier? The worldview taught to you by your old, uncool, fa uh, not famous, stodgy parents who are people of average intelligence or the view that is projected by young, good-looking people who have thousands of fans on their media platforms, and you can get a t-shirt at 10% discount, <laughs> who stage happiness for the viewers in an immersive social media experience, who are a brand, who are trending, and who brazenly challenge traditional values and ethics in intimate moments of selfie honesty. What's sexier right now? We must not despise the role of parents and grandparents. There is something precious here that we must dig into. It is interesting to me that Paul traces Timothy's faith back through more than one generation. He's not tainted by the modern mindset that says everything old or traditional, or whatever your grandparents believed, is automatically disqualified. Our faith is not dictated to, uh, by the latest fad, but has rich historical roots that we can tap into in an age that has abandoned the truth. We have a faith that has stood the test of time, a faith that martyrs have died for, that reformers have articulated in the heat of battle, a faith that has shaped millions of lives, even the lives of your parents and grandparents. We have many examples in the faith to draw on at a time like this. People who have fought the good fight, who have stood in their generation, setting an example for us to stand in ours. So, remembering the divine source of the truths that we have learned from the apostles, the truths that we have learned as children, knowing that our values and beliefs are built upon the eternal word of God, not the passing fancies of modern trends, this is what will help us to stand. Remember the examples of those who have gone before us, who have had to wage the same battle and have stood true, and will we. But the second reason that Paul puts forward to, to hold firm is he makes an argument from the nature of the Bible. What is the word? 
The second reason Paul puts forward for Timothy holding fast to the truth is the fact that he has learned that truth from God's word. Building our lives on the foundation of God's word is the most solid foundation we can ask for in an age where truth is whatever you feel it to be. So the nature of our Bibles, it's described here in two ways. Firstly, Paul says that they are the sacred scriptures. The sacred scriptures. The holy writings. Not just ordinary writings, but those writings that have been set apart by God. Do you want that stuff that God has put aside for special use? God has provided something for you. The sacred scriptures. And the second thing that Paul does is he talks about how we got the Bible. It is God-breathed. Because of what the Bible is, God's very words are beneficial to us. The Bible is not like any other book. It is not merely writings. It is the sacred writings. And these are God's words revealed to us. So Paul adds to their nature in describing how they came to us. They're God-breathed. So if you have a translation in front of you that says uh, they are inspired by God, that's not the best translation of the word theonoustos. It's not as if God has come along to a human document and decided to breathe into it. In other words, God did not adopt or bless an already existing human document. The Bible came into existence as God's word. God breathed it out. That's the, that's the, the picture through this language. So technically, you and I believe in the expiration of Scripture. How does that sound? doesn't sound very good because the word expired usually means past its sell-by date. <laughs> but um, technically, we believe in the expiration of Scripture. So we continue to use the word inspiration because it just sounds a little bit better. So the Bible is the product of God overseeing those who wrote it ensuring that what was written could be called God's word, God's truth, God's revelation. God did not possess the scriptural writers, but using their personalities by the power of his spirit, using their understanding, their vocabulary, their cultural embeddedness. They were born along by the Holy Spirit. The end result being human words written by human authors in human understandings, but whose content was God's own word kept from error. That's what the Bible is. You need to know that this is a book unlike any other. This is a book that you can die on, a hill you can literally die on. There is no other set of writings with the Bible's credentials, with the Bible's proven track record. The, or, the origination of the Bible by God's Spirit as he preserved it. The antiquity of the Bible, how old it is. The preservation of the text over the many centuries. The history of the Bible, uh, its archaeology the prophecies of the Bible, the morality of the Bible, the unity of the Scriptures, really revealing one author writing over thousands of years through over 40 different people, the meaningful and purposeful worldview of the Bible, which explains all of life's basic questions. Is there a God? Who made me? Why am I here? What am I? What am I for? It's all answered by the Bible. And of course, most importantly for us, the redemptive story at the center of the Bible, which centers around God's salvation in Christ. There is also the description of our fallen condition. All of these things and more go to prove that the Bible is God's word, and it is a faithful and solid foundation to be built upon. What it is ensures its effectiveness. 
And this is why uh, we, we, we go to Psalm 19, and it was read for us earlier. Whenever the Bible talks about the law, we often apply that to the scriptures as a whole, not merely the Old Testament. And so David says this in Psalm 19, verse 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Just looking at those descriptions in verses 7 to 9, David gives six characteristics of God's word. It's the law of the Lord, it's the testimony of the Lord, it's the precepts of the Lord, it's the commandments of the Lord, it is the fear of the Lord, it's the rules of the Lord, of the Lord. Did you get it? And he describes the effects of that word. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. It is true and righteous. This is what we are building our lives upon. This can be built upon. It is God's word. Our enlivening and education, our holiness and happiness is secured when we ground our lives upon the word of God because of what it is. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy at a time where everything around him is falling apart. And this is where we can build our lives. So we come now then to the sufficiency of the word. Our third point. Paul has described what the Bible is. Now he describes what it is for. Look at verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here we are told that the Bible is profitable, that it is sufficient, that it is enough to equip us for every good work. That's a big statement. This is our basic conviction about the Bible. This is the conviction that every Christian should have about the Bible. Now, this wouldn't be an impact conference if I didn't quote... John MacArthur. So here is my token quote of John MacArthur. John MacArthur uh, records a conversation with a so-called Christian who did not hold to this view of Scripture. He writes, I once agreed to debate a man who led an evangelical homosexual denomination. I asked, what do you do with the Bible's condemnations of homosexuality as sin? Oh, come on, he said. Everybody knows that the Bible is psychologically unsophisticated, reflecting the views of primitive thinking. The Bible is antiquated in its sociological theory. You cannot go to an ancient document like this and expect to deal with 20th century social problems. The Bible ought to stay in its own environment. It needs to be updated with a contemporary understanding of psychological and sociological phenomena. Rubbish. Paul says... Rubbish. We see that the Bible is profitable. And he goes on to tell us for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now traditionally, the, comment, the commentators have divided these four things up into two categories. The first two, teaching and reproof, have to do with what you believe. The second two, correction and training, have to do with how you live your life. 
And you'll notice that there is both a positive and a negative aspect to what we believe. It teaches us the truth, the positive, and it keeps us from error. It reproves error, negative. The second couplet has to do with our ethics or our conduct. It corrects us, there's the negative, and it trains us in righteousness, there's the positive. And this has led to Christians talking about the sufficiency of the Bible for faith and practice. Everything you need to know to believe, and everything that you need to know how to live in order to please God, the Bible is enough. This then is how we use the Bible. When you want to know something true, Believe what the Bible says. When you want to prove something wrong, compare it to the scriptures and show it to be false. The Bible will teach you the difference between truth and error, right and wrong. Likewise, when it comes to personal correction and training in holiness, it is the commands and instructions of the Bible which correct us and point us in the right direction. Sadly, we live in an age that no longer recognizes the authority of the Bible, and that's the problem. We follow the authority of human authorities, intellectuals, trends, emotions. That's the biggest authority these days. I love the way Al Mola puts it. Much of what we have seen in our secular moment is a battle between revolution and revelation. The secular worldview eventually displaced a biblical worldview. Eventually, all claims of divine revelation become meaningless in a secular space. In the academy, there is an ever-increasing hostility to any claim of revelation. Elsewhere, claims that the Bible is the word of God are met with a form of intellectual embarrassment. The church is the final place in a hyper-modern society where the statement, God says, makes any sense at all. But it had better make total sense in the church. Verse 17 then goes on to tell us that the man of God, and that's a technical phrase for a minister or an elder, will be made complete. This means perfect, suitable, exactly fitted for every good work. And here's how it applies to you. If the Bible is sufficient to equip your pastor or your elder, a leader of God's people for every good work, then arguing from the greater to the lesser, it is sufficient for the, per the person in the pew. All that God requires of us, all that we need to help us in every situation, the Bible is enough. In principle or precept, it helps us to address every single situation that could ever arise in a fallen world. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be differences of conscience. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be differences of interpretation. That doesn't mean there aren't, there aren't going to be differences of uh, how wisdom is worked out and applied to these situations, but the principles will be clear. God has not left us without guidance and help. The word is a lamp for our feet. We always know where to put the next step when we go to the scriptures. So let me take now an example, and let's bring it home to our controversial topic. Uh, let's discuss the matter of gender pronouns. By the way, my name is Nick Cleveley, and my God-given pronouns are he, him, and his. Um, <laughs> it is commonly thought today that gender is a social construct. In other words, gender is not something given by God but derived from society. Gender is not the description of a biological fact. Gender is not universally binary, therefore. In other words, male and female. Note, traditional understandings of gender, as we understand them, 
come from oppressive narratives where those in power have spun a particular narrative that suits the way they want to see the world, which excludes all sorts of people with viable gender identities that fall outside the traditional categories. So if you want to be for justice, if you want to be for the marginalized, you have to be against traditional language conventions that reflect traditional views of sex and gender. And so you have to reconstruct a more inclusive society through the way in which language is used. The post-structuralist, post-Christian governments of the West have imbibed this ideology. And as a result, they are involved in gender reconstruction along more inclusive lines. So here is an excerpt from an email from a friend of mine who works for the New Zealand government. Anyone here work for the New Zealand government? <laughs> Maybe you got this email. This email was about giving advice on how to include gender pronouns in your email signature. All right? Email signature is that part where you say pastor or consultant or whatever it is you end your email with. And so they are encouraged to put their preferred gender pronouns in the email signature. And I quote, this is now from that email. When cisgender people include pronouns, do you know what cisgender means? Anyone want to define cisgender for us? So if you were born a boy and you feel like a boy, you're not transgender, you're cisgender. You identify with your birth sex. All right, so it's, an, it's, it's the new name for normal, but uh, we won't <laughs> say that out loud. This is, this is a way in which they're trying to make space for the transgender description, is by characterizing normality as just an equally viable uh, category among other legitimate options. So there's, langu it's, it's, there's an insidious agenda going on here, but let me reread that. When cisgender people include pronouns... It normalizes it for everyone, and it protects trans and gender diverse people when they include their pronouns. So you're creating a safe space by uh, putting your pronouns there. It gives them room so that they can do the same thing. Having pronouns in an email signature signals you as an LGBTQIA plus ally. All right. There's more to say, but let's just talk about that for a moment. This is from the government. They want you to signal. They want you to broadcast. They want you to come out as a straight ally, if you're straight, for those who are LGBTQIA+. And uh, already you should be thinking in terms of biblical categories. What immediately came to my mind is the can you eat food offered to idols debate in 1 Corinthians. And Paul, when he answers that question, can you eat meat offered to idols, answers, yes, no, depends. <laughs> yes, you can eat meat offered to idols if you go buy it in the marketplace, even though it's been offered to an idol, because everything in the world belongs to God. Pray over it, eat it in good conscience, no problem. No, if you're going into a temple and participating in the religious services and partaking of the cup of demons and the, the table of demons, no, you can't eat in that context. And look, it depends. If you're with someone who thinks you're condoning their God and denying your God by eating, then you shouldn't. So if you are signaling that you're an ally, what are people thinking when you put your gender pronouns forward? They're thinking you approve. 
you as a Christian are representing a God who approves of these things. You see, the lines are being drawn. There are no neutral actions anymore. We can't just go with the flow and maybe try and fly below the radar on these issues anymore. The battle is coming. But let me continue to read from the email. How to include your pronouns? In your email signature, add your pronouns, she, he, they, ze, etc. after your name. Use a hyperlink to this webpage on the pronouns so people can learn more by clicking on them. Other ways to be more inclusive. Consider starting a meeting with each attendee sharing their names and pronouns. That's it. All right, so you get there in the morning and now it's staff meeting time and let's just go around the circle and let's share our names and our preferred gender pronouns. They're encouraging this in the workplace. I mean, this is basically bringing another religion into the workplace, isn't it? Include your pronouns in your LinkedIn profile by adding them after your last name. Ask people politely what pronouns they use. We shouldn't assume pronouns based on appearance name or any other factor. Don't even use the term preferred or gender when describing your pronouns. Although people often mean well when they use these terms, it can imply that pronoun is a preference rather than a requirement. You're required to do it. You shouldn't see it as a preference. You shouldn't see it as optional. You should see it as Required. So even using the word preferred pronouns is signaling that it's not required. So don't even use that language anymore. It's, 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 it's too weak. Come out stronger. And even using the word gender can ignore and marginalize agender people. So there are people who just don't identify as anything. And if we use the word gender, we've excluded them and we've got to be inclusive come on guys we are captive to being inclusive and so that has to that we, we're now bound by this inclusivity if you get pronouns or a name wrong it's good to acknowledge a mistake privately and try to get it right next time be an active ally and help others understand why this is important end quote This is what's going on from our New Zealand government. This email etiquette is being used to promote universal endorsement and practice. This is ideological brainwashing. But as Christians, we know that these ideas are lies which contradict the truth of God's word. How does the Bible equip us in this fast-paced, emotionally very divisive, government-backed agenda. There are various reasons being put forward for why we should not use wrong pronouns. I'm going to give you three categories. Here are the three reasons, at least just from my observations, when people are discussing these things, why people don't use preferred pronouns. Firstly, there is the civil liberties argument. The civil liberties argument is a political argument which says, I don't have to use your pronouns on the basis of freedom of conscience and freedom of speech. This would be a good argument from natural law, which Christians could utilize in the public arena 
without, if you're not allowed to bring the Bible into the discussion, then you'll be charged with the logical fallacy of, argu uh, of arguing from authority. You quoted an authority, therefore it's illegitimate. You quoted the Bible, it's, it's disqualified by, by, by virtue of being an authority. If you need a natural law argument that doesn't bring the Bible into it, this is a good one to use. And there are good guys out there like uh, Jordan Peterson. He'd be a well-known advocate of this sort of position. All right? It's good. It's not bad. But it's not the first argument that we as Christians go with. Secondly, there is the scientific argument. This too is an argument from nature. This argument says a transgender woman is not, scientifically speaking or biologically, a true woman. And likewise, a transgender man, a true man. No amount of surgery, no amount of makeup, no amount of treatments, no amount of therapy, no amount of looking in the mirror and telling yourself stuff will change your chromosomes, will, will create a whole reproductive system in your body. It's biologically untrue. That's a good argument. It's an argument from nature. It's just a fact. And so you'd find people like Ben Shapiro would be one, a typical advocate of this sort of view. Um, even feminists are using this sort of view today to critique the tyranny of the, the T, the transgender movement. So you might have heard of J.K. Rowling, author of the Harry Potter series. She got into big trouble and uh, Daniel Radcliffe disowned her because she said a transgender woman is not a real woman because uh, real women have ovaries. There is a third reason why we cannot use, and this is the primary reason for us as Christians, the teachings of the Bible are clear. The Word of God tells us something different. Genesis 1 verse 26 and 27, God made us male and female, full stop. Our identities are not self-defined. They are not created by our whims or our wills or our fancies or our imagination. They are given. We are creatures. We are not creators. We receive our identities. We do not construct them. We are to imitate God in his truth-telling. We cannot condone a lie. Why does, why does the ninth commandment exist? Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Because God is a God of truth and you're his image bearer. That's why. And it's true when it comes to this as well. Now, there's a bit of a journey that's gone on here. And as we're moving forward in this discussion, and we need to play catch up, I think, quite quickly, because there's been some vacillation in this area. In the past, there have been, been some Christians who've been involved in ministry to homosexuals, who, out of love, and who out of sensitivity have used preferred pronouns. It's even been called uh, preferred pr uh, pronoun hospitality. <laughs> Where uh, you, because you're seeking to build a relationship, you, because you're not wanting to make an issue out of this thing, you're wanting to just sort of casually allow that language to pass you by as you go for the real issue, which is their salvation. And so you sort of downplay it while you get to the gospel first. Can we do that anymore? What does the new government, what does the New Zealand government think if you endorse gender pronoun? Uh, if, when you in, endorse this email etiquette, you're signaling that you're an ally. And it becomes a matter of eating that meat offered to an idol before a man who thinks you're denying your God. 
witness is now going to be the primary thing. The line has been drawn. We, we can no longer fly beneath the radar. It is becoming a public issue. And we're going to have to avoid the appearance of evil on this one. So folks like Rosaria Butterfield are thought to be uh, someone who have used and preached preferred pronoun hospitality who have changed their minds. So they backtracked on it. Um, since Obergefell, which is where all 50 states in America were legally bound to acknowledge same-sex marriages, from that point onwards, there was something different politically, not only in America, but in the world. And so Christians will now have to try and speak truth in an age that is institutionalizing lies. This is going to especially impact those who work in any government department. If you're a teacher, if you're a therapist, if you're a policeman, I think uh, we were at a youth camp the other day and a, a man who, who works for the police, you know, here's a, here's a person who's been a victim of crime and now you've got to write down their names. And then you've got to talk to them about their statement. What do you do? Or as a Christian, what do you do? If you're in the classroom and uh, you're, you work for an organization that has allowed a student to identify different to their biological sex, and now it's time for roll call, what do you do? I'm asking you. You're going to give me the answers just now. Um, I'm sowing the seeds here. I believe that the church needs to prepare for that suffering. Suffering that the Bible warns about, that those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We need to take a stand upon the Word of God because it is the Word of God, because it is clear with regards to our path moving forward. And if it has to cost us something, we should be willing to pay that cost. In 2021, Christians are seen as an enemy and part of the problem. The Bible has the reputation of being a book of oppression and lies, but we know different. It is divine truth. It is the truth that sets us free. Will we be true to the Bible and continue in what we have learned from it? And so that's my challenge for you today. I wanted to reinforce what the Bible is, that you can stand upon it. And I wanted to draw that line clearly what that the Bible says and get you to live by it. I'll stop there. All right, any comments or questions? We've had a similar situation down south where a traditional boys' school has thrown it open. Yeah. Yep, it's, it's a very good question. So we've got to, I think we've got to be creative with how we move forward. And I'm from South Africa, and in South Africa we had a we had a naming convention which could work as a creative possibility. So in South Africa, everyone had to go to the army. And there were a lot of male teachers in the schools. And it was a common habit that the male teachers would just call you, Hey, Cleveland, come over here. <laughs> and so you only use the surname. And so um, it's also, there's difference of opinion. 
so although pronouns are very clearly a biological description of someone who's not a boy or a girl, but names are more ambiguous. When I grew up, I was called Nikki. Now, that could be anything, couldn't it? So uh, that's more ambiguous. And so using names as opposed to pronouns, that's another creative way to try and stick, uh, you know, try to steer clear of things. Uh, there may have to come a time where we try and create some space. We, we are still living in a democratic society where if Christians do t take a stand, we might be able to convince the government to recognize our freedom not to use it. And so we, we might have, there might have to be some amongst us who will be willing to take a stand and maybe we need to coordinate a response to the government before it becomes an issue and you know, try and rally ourselves to, to make a statement to the government. That, so I think those are some things that, that we could do. Yep, we've got a question at the back. Um, so I didn't get it from him. I'm protecting the identity of my friend. Yes. Who's your pastor? Ask him first. <laughs> Especially him. <Yeah. laughs> um, there may be an exodus of people from government positions. And there may be a need to take a stand so that there isn't an exodus in government positions. Um, if you are in a group of people, a, a large network of Christians that you know are in that area, maybe it's time to come up with a battle plan and think about strategies moving forward. So, okay, yeah. So, so that would be a difficult situation. So, yeah, I mean, it's maybe the New Zealand government will never do anything about it. And it's just a suggestion. I don't know. You'd know your context better than me. And get advice from your pastor before you get it from me. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so how do we tackle political action as a Christian? Um, so, I mean, w there are a couple of concerns there, aren't there? You know, what we don't want to do is lay aside the gospel and the Great Commission to get involved in an emotionally charged, compelling situation that distracts us from the gospel. So I'm a two kingdoms guy, so I have a theology that accounts for these things. I can be, as the local church, focusing on the Great Commission, yet as in my capacity as a private citizen, I can be banding together with like-minded people, even unsaved people, as a citizen of New Zealand, and, ha and have common cause with people in political endeavors. So I can march with people who aren't Christians against abortion. I can uh, you know, get a petition going, get lots of signatures on it, and send it to my, uh, my MP and so on. So I think as long as you've got that distinction very clear, recognizing you are a citizen of two kingdoms, and you're not denying the gospel in order to do that, I think, you know, I would, I would want to make some space for that. Yeah. Um, what about um, hidden agenda 
ID, ETV, uh, pink shirt day. Um, on a whole, it looks very pure. You know, it's all about bullying or anti-bullying. But when you actually, and I think as Christians, we need to start actually not just listening to what we're being fed, but we need to do our own research. Yep. Because in a lot of these things, there's actually a hidden agenda. And when you actually really deeply go down, you're actually supporting something that you don't actually Amen. Support. Can I expand on that? So let me give you a real life example from Timaru. So we've got Mountain View High School and uh, there's Mufti Days. You all have Mufti Days, right? So you've Mufti Days and uh, you pay your money and that money gets given to a chosen charity. This particular Mufti Day, the chosen charity, was an organization that supported LGBTQIA plus issues. And so there, were, there is a, a number of Christian teachers as well as a number of Christian students. Some of the Christian students had been set aside to be the head boy for the next year. Okay, so, so people in good standing with uh, you know, good repute in, in the society there. And they went to this teacher, and the teacher said, look, I can't tell you what to do. But if I were in your shoes, this is what I would do. And that's how he gave advice. Um, and he said, look, I just wouldn't come in Mufti that day, and I'd just keep my uniform. And if anyone asked, I would say, look, I'm a Christian, and I can't in good conscience support that. So that's what the Christian kids did. And they all did it together. The whole, all the kids in one big youth group, they were all in this school, did it together. And so that way they felt a little bit safer. And um, as a result, some of the teachers who were not Christians, came to this young man who was head boy and said, you should be disgusted with yourself. How could you do such a thing? You know, you're going to be head boy. I think you should make a public apology for what you have done. And this, this teacher made it sound as if this boy's role as being the head boy was in the balance. It turned out it wasn't, but it was disgusting that an adult teacher would bring such pressure to bear upon a child. And uh, this, this man's father is another teacher in the same school, so he was very angry. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, think this, I think that's just a great example of, of you know, Christians being faithful in a school context. We want Christians in the schools, don't we? We want them in the workplace. We want them being the salt and the light. And I think we just need to be a little bit preemptively warned and prepared and have some strategies in place and, and have some creative ideas going. Let's, let's discuss these things. That's the value of having sessions like this. And uh, let's get some stuff going. Yep, Russell. Yeah, maybe we can cut someone on this one, Nick. I mean, what you've highlighted, I'm so pleased you've actually brought this particular issue, because I think there's many issues that have almost caught us unaware as Christians and the church, and how do you respond to this? I love the idea of um, biblical categories. But at a higher level, you know, the question we're asking ourselves is, you know, why the militancy, why the pervasiveness, you know, the of this agenda? Why are issues around gender nonconformity, sexual liberties, eclipsing all other liberties? You know, I'm, I'm on accommodation overload at this point. Yeah. You know, accommodation is only going in one direction. We know where they're wanting to take us. Theologically, how do we um, account for that level of almost tsunami? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I know you've got an answer to the question, so I'll give my stab at it, and then I'll ask you to speak to that. But uh, my good friend Russell, is my, he's my, uh, my consultant on these issues. If I want some advice, I go to him. If you want to get some, some deep questions answered, go to him. He's the guy. But um, I think Carl Truman's book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, is incredibly helpful in assessing the moment that we're at in, in time right now. 
And one of the things that he highlights is just the history of philosophy leading to our moment in time. And he highlights the fact that we're in a therapeutic culture. And the idol of the authentic self is the idol of this age. And we're not battling. Well, bas basically, we're battling religions. We're battling worldviews. We're battling ideologies, which, you know, everything, it, and a, a worldview answers every question about you, doesn't it? And so it's, it's a battle between truth and lies. And that's, so everything's at stake in, uh, when, when this is the nature of the battle. But, but uh, Russell, do you have any thoughts on that? Please, let's hear them, brother. You wrote a lot in a very short time there, brother. That's amazing. <laughs> Fastest handwriter in the world. <laughs> but just, yeah. I can recreate. Amen. And, and we, you know, we understand the force behind it. This is Satan at work. This is Satan driving this. You know, why is it issues of sexuality that Satan would choose to attack the church, to bring down society? Because these are the issues that have the most potent gospel imaging potential, don't they? Amen. Someone get this man a pulpit. Yeah, amen. That's right. It's it's not bearing the fruit that's that's promised. Yeah. What do you think about uh, Christians getting involved with politics and you know on the governmental I think if Christians in their individual capacity get involved in politics, awesome. If churches give up the Great Commission and confuse it with politics and become social justice warriors, terrible. So as long as you keep the main thing the main thing, I think you have, there is a place for political action. Okay, my aunt is in that situation. And what I did as a young, rabid Christian, and this is what not to do, <laughs> is uh, I took their Bible, which they had never written in or underlined, and I took the brightest yellow marker I could find, and I underlined every verse on homosexuality I could find. <laughs> um, it is a good idea. It's <laughs> what I thought at the time. Um, I mean, I think like any other issue, it's building that relationship, having the long conversation, um, having a faithful witness, you know, speaking the truth in love. Jesus at the woman at the well, I think, is a great paradigm. He didn't compromise on her sins. 
but he didn't drive her away. She, was, she had felt disenfranchised from society by virtue of her sins already. And I think that I would point you to John 4 and just reading people around who've, who've spoken about John 4 as a paradigm for ministry in this context is a great way of moving forward. Yeah, that's Rosaria Butterfield. Do you know her? So Rosaria Butterfield is a very famous, um, she was a lesbian professor uh, in California uh, in English literature, and she has a very public testimony. She's written at least three outstanding books. One is her testimony. Another one is articulating basically how you minister to someone who's coming out of that lifestyle. And the third one's on hospitality, radical hospitality, using the home as a ministry tool. And... Um, I would just encourage you to follow her work. Her reasoning is very biblical, very precise. She's a reformed pastor's wife. Um, so, yeah, just, just, just read her and, and wrestle with her thinking. Yep. What time do we end, guys? It's 4.35. Aren't we supposed to end five minutes ago? Okay. You haven't asked any hard questions. I want to end it before the hard questions come. Next question. <laughs> the reason why I say that is because a lot of, and I'm okay with this, a lot of, a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ actually voted for this government that is coming up with all of these rules. And so here we are trying to, trying to come up with a, uh, a solution to a problem which we all know is actually coming. But yet we all voted. And a lot of yeah, we, a lot of us voted, and this government is in because we voted them in. So you're blaming everyone in this room for this government? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying like this is we're, we're trying to, we're trying to do the. I'm not saying that. Yeah, that I think what you're trying to say, the subtext is you're encouraging Christians to vote more biblically. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like, don't, don't vote. I agree. An informed conscience. Yeah. Right. Next question. Um, I'll say something, and Vicar, if you can interact with it. So, some people might make the argument, um, and this comes from someone who totally is not using the pronoun, right? Um, but would make the argument that, uh, in some level, it's appropriate to use them, and it would be equivalent to, let's say, someone with a different kind of, you could say, like mental illness, where they're convinced that something. So, so you're looking for the exceptions to the rule? Okay, yeah, carry on. So let's say they're convinced like the TV is talking to them, you know, the, something like that, the radio's talking to them, there's clearly an issue there. And to deal with that, you kind of go, okay, yeah, sure. And you know, and we all know, the radio's not talking to them. Yeah. Well, let me give you a better comparison then. Maybe a, a scenario where I think maybe we should use them. So let me, and, and what I mean by should is not in the full-blown, I'm endorsing this way, but just as a soft-peddling my issues while I get to the point. So imagine someone is suicidal, 
someone who's had surgery, someone who's cross-dressing. They've been in this lifestyle for 20 to 30 years. But I roadblock the conversation because, you know, I've got to stop and make sure that all my speech is exactly right and I can't even, I can't even engage with their, their emotions, their need for Christ and the basic issues that are tearing their lives apart because I'm too busy monitoring their speech or my speech. I think at that point, you know, and I wouldn't want to make it a norm, I wouldn't want to make it a pattern, but at that point, in that emergency, I think, you know, we recognize that there are situations where there are exceptions to the rule, but the exceptions don't break the rule, they prove the rule. Yeah, yeah. So does that help? Yeah. And look, that one's going to be an issue of conscience, and maybe there are people here that would disagree, and, you know, let them die. That's, I'll be a martyr, let them be a martyr for my truth. <laughs> you know, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I, I don't know the nature of the group, so I haven't got no comments. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. Sorry, I'm not familiar with the group, so I can't. I can't speak to it. Yeah. I don't know that person, so it would be, yeah. yeah no, it's I really, but I know that, you know, their parents are very Christians. And, and they could still come to church? One of the things that I did, uh, there was a, an individual who was undergoing sex reassignment surgery. It was a long process over many years. He had his voice box changed to a higher register. He was busy having hormones. His body was starting to go lumpy in the wrong places. And um, he attended a funeral at a church that he grew up in. And basically what happened was he just stood by himself by the coffee table and no one spoke to him because everyone knew who he was. And so I just felt it would be appropriate to go and be the guy who stood next to him, who gave my condolences, who just showed love, who, who didn't make him feel like he was a leper. And um, I think that stuff goes a long way. You know, how did Jesus engage with the woman at the well? I think I think there is definitely a paradigm there. So what do you do as a Christian in your day to day shopping, knowing that your larger say supermarket chains um, are taking portions of what their growth and profit is and going towards the the progressive side of the LGBTIQ? It's like buying meat in the marketplace that's offered to idols. Give thanks and eat. That's, that's, that's just an off-the-cuff uh, response. Yeah. I'm assuming that's a church that doesn't practice church discipline. I mean, at, at that point, there are responsibilities of the elders. They should be stepping in and address, you know, supporting her while addressing his sin. If he's confessing to be a Christian, he should be dealt with as a sinning Christian. And cross-dressing is clearly condemned in 1 Corinthians 15, where the principle of head coverings 
um, the principles that we would extract from their text uphold those principles. So maybe encourage them to go to a more biblically-based church. <laughs> that's, that's what I would say there, yeah. Anyway, guys, I don't want to keep you unnecessarily wrong. Do you, do you still want to keep asking questions? Yeah. Can you expand <laughs> on what you just said, please, about the head covering? <laughs> 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 Who, who's asking that? Please don't cross-dress. <laughs> Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 makes an argument from nature. Does not nature itself teach? And he argues for masculine norms and female norms. And he argues for them through the, the cultural, culturally acceptable symbol of a wife's submission towards her husband, which in that context was a head covering. Paul was upholding... Uh, something in that culture that was agreeing with creation. And so a way that we could apply that in the world today would be, for example, um, hyphenated surnames. Don't tell me if you've got one, because I'm going to make a big statement. <laughs> Christians should not have hyphenated surnames, where a man and a woman's names are taken, except in one example, which is biblical, and I can talk about that just now, where... Um, in an egalitarian context where a woman does not join the man's house and take his name as a showing that he is the head of the home, but rather they have a hyphenated name to show that there's an equal power sharing thing going on. That would be a vile, that would be, if Paul was alive to say, he would say, don't do that in the same way that he said, wear head coverings or men don't have effeminate length hair. Um, so that's, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a cultural principle that would be denying a creation norm. So, yep. Thanks, Russell. Yeah. yeah sorry, no, I just. Please. No, no, but I mean, a lot of the questions today have been around situations of dealing, um, people are dealing with in their specific life, specific individuals. Now, I said a few words before, I might have sounded quite militant, I do get very fired up and, and passionate in terms of um, where I believe we need to be. Amen. Again, I'm, able to, I'm able to respond to the gospel. This is how I find 
church can sell in terms of embracing love. I love what you said. You know, I come alongside Amen. And just so maybe you don't know who Russell is, but we ran a gender and sexuality conference, and Russell was our keynote speaker. He's got a lot of uh, familiarity with these issues. If, if you want deeper questions, and please go speak to him afterwards. I treat them the same way I treat anyone else. You know, let's say there's a, a boy and a girl come into church, 21, 22 years old, and they start getting it on on the back bench. It doesn't matter whether they're homosexuals or not. It's inappropriate public behavior given our context. And so if they come in and they're respectful and they're not lavishing affection over people in a way that's making everyone around them uncomfortable, they're welcome. We want them to be there. We want to preach the gospel to them. We want to get to know them. We want to pursue relationship with them so we can preach to them. I think, you know, if you have responsible elders, they'll be responding to that after the first visit. It'd be like someone coming to church drunk. You know, you'd be, you'd be crossing their path very quickly to engage with them, to see what's going on and to ensure that they're not going to be a disruption. It's not going to happen again. Is there something we can put in place to make sure that da 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 da, da. So they, they w we'd have to begin a conversation and, and, and given the, end of the particulars of the situation, you'd map out a course for how to deal with it. And there may have to come a time where, you know, if, if, if they are an obstruction to worship and if they are flaunting, I mean, the <laughs> you get some hecklers. Uh, I've got a friend who runs a church in Wellington and a transvestite would walk in off the street and shout while he was preaching. <laughs> um, you know, in that situation, you're just going to have to bodily remove them as you would remove anyone. So I think, I think we need to realize that it's, it's often a sin like any other sin and yet it's not a sin like any other sin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so I guess the question is this. If your children were walking down the street and they saw two men holding hands, would you cover their eyes? Yeah. Yeah. So if it's not being done in such a way that's promoting, condoning, or distracting then you know, we, we want to make sure that there's a, a place. Uh, we want them to be there to hear the gospel until it becomes disruptive. See, we're not painting a detailed enough situation, so it's hard for me to respond. It's hard for me to apply principles until they're actually doing something, saying something. Uh, you know. So it's more than just the fact that they're wearing women's clothing. There's, there's going to be more that I'm going to be evaluating. Yeah. So, all right, guys, let's, let's wrap it up. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for the word of God, which gives us light. And Lord, we ask you for wisdom 
as we seek to live faithfully as people who speak the truth in love, who are as compassionate and as uncompromising as Christ is, especially given these issues. Lord, help us to be people who are wise. Help us to be people, Lord, who uh, have the right words at the right time. Help us to be people who are loving. And Lord, um, as we negotiate this fallen world with its multiplicity of situations that we're going to be facing, Lord, help us to be faithful that we might glorify your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate your patience.